here we are now with episode number 10 of our series, You Are the Chosen One. Now, there was a little bit in the plot that we didn't go over much of in the last episode, which was that Harry comes out after facing the Dark Lord and he gets taken away by Mad-Eye Moody. And there's a bit of a showdown between Dumbledore and Moody and we figure out that actually Moody is being imposted. He's an imposter. He's just pretending. He's using the magic potion that makes him look like Moody. And then it begins this thing of Voldemort is back but no one believes Harry. And that's where we left off last episode. That's where the book Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire ends. And now we are up to book five, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. We're in the thick of it. This is the this is uh this is where things are getting tough. Things are happening. It's all coming to. There's a lot in this. It's complicated, so we're gonna go through it. So Harry's back with the Dursleys. And this thing comes up, this storm comes up, and it turns out to be a bunch of Dementors. And the Dementors attack Dudley, Harry's cousin. And Harry manages to save them. And then there's this whole thing of, well, Harry's going to get expelled because he used magic outside of school hours. And this becomes a thing. This becomes, there's a whole trial for him. And it's this big send-up. And it's a really big issue for Harry. And it really shows, well, how back to front the world is becoming. And how much mistrust there is in, well, from Harry in the Ministry of Magic. And the whole bureaucracy, the whole government system. It's really turning against him. And this is at a time, well, when he knows that Lord Voldemort is back and he knows they've got bigger problems. So this is a recurring, this is one of the narrative threads, which is Harry saved Dudley, but is in trouble for using uh, magic. And Harry visits his friends at the Weasley house as well. And another thread comes up, which is that Percy... The, friend, the, the older brother of Harry's friend Ron has come to have this, uh, what should we say, career in the Ministry of Magic. And it's a promotion that he gets. And it's, just, you know, it's a quite a, it's sort of like you get this position, you get this feeling like it's oh, quite a high up position. It's a pretty, oh, pretty important role that he's got. But there's this thing of, uh, that, you know, Ron turns to Harry and says, oh, don't talk about Percy. Don't, don't mention it. And we see that, well, actually, there are some really, there's some really sensitive subjects there. And what's happening there is, well, this son of Mr. Mr. Weasley's has done all this work and built this career for himself inside something which is actually turning out to not be very good and not be something that he agrees with. Mr. Weasley is definitely on Harry's side about him using magic to get away some Dementors from his cousin. He's actually doing the right thing there. And there's a lot of things like this that are coming up which really point more and more to this entity, which is the Ministry of Magic, which originally we thought, when we first read the first Harry Potter book, their job was to keep keep the magic world hidden. They should be keeping the muggles out of it. They should keep keeping us normal people away from seeing the magic that's happening. That's their main job. But now we're learning more and more that actually, no, they're into the laws and more of what do wizards do and don't do and what's being said about them and about the state of affairs in the world, in the press. So press comes into it and who says what and what is a danger and what isn't a danger. So this whole world is turning into a big culture. It's turning into a sort of 
culture wars between the individual and collectives. And that's really where the title of this book comes from. This is the theme of this book. This is the issue of the entire book. And it's the thickest book. It's the heaviest book. Without metaphor. <laughs> I know I, of, I often say heavy as in... <laughs> I don't mean it's heavy. We've, we've already had some pretty heavy moments so far in this narrative. <laughs> but I mean physically this book is the heaviest book. And, well, just looking at the title, we can get this thesis out, which is that humans decide to organize themselves into collectives. And the question is, well, how do they do that? And that is a big question. That is a huge question when we're talking about the collectives within culture and societies and civilization and humanity. There are so many different ways we can go into it. There are so many different ways we can look at it. And essentially, the order of the phoenix is a collective. And it's a bunch of wizards that say, you know what, I don't agree entirely with what's happening here. And I'm not the only one that doesn't agree. And I know that you're not going to change, so I'm going to go off and do my own thing with these people over here. And that essentially is how a collective occurs, or at least one of the ways the collective, a collective occurs. So let's go into this a little bit more, because this is important. And we can discuss what the book means and what the actual statement about collectives and their interactions with each other are, is. <laughs> but more importantly is to understand the structure. More importantly is to understand the mechanisms at work. We want to have a meta view of what's going on. And here's what I think. This is what I've just... <clears throat> pardon me. This is what I've just dreamed up. Just looking at the title, The Order of the Phoenix, and knowing that it's got something to do with how collectives occur and how they relate to each other. Basically, we're all grown up in a society, and that society has a government. And the government is the entity that decides more or less what the collectives do, what people can and can't do in that country. And there's a range within that. And there are variations on that. And there are degrees of freedom or control within that. And that's one entity. It's the government. It's the state. It's the constitution. It's politics. It's the law. All these sorts of things. And that's really one major collective. It's one form of the collective. Then we have the education system. And that's different. That is more like a conveyor belt. It's more like a procedure. It's more like a, well, it's a system. And a system is you start in one way as one thing, and then you go along and you do all the things in the system, one after the other, step by step, process by process, procedure by procedure. And then at the end, you are something else. So you start out as one thing and you end up as another thing. Now, in your, in your ABC education system, that's tied with the age you are. When you're a certain age, you are doing this. When you're another age, you're doing this. And it goes for years and years and years. And it's quite hard to separate one from the other and your own personal growth with the growth that is happening because of the institution, because of the education system. 
And as life goes on, as you grow up a little bit more, there are more certain freedoms. And there are other collectives that you get to involve yourself in, like soccer club, or chess club, or pony club. And essentially, pony club is, well, I like riding ponies, and you also like riding ponies, so let's, let's choose a day of the week where I get my pony, you get your pony, and we'll ride some ponies together, and that will be fun. And maybe someone will see us riding their ponies and say, oh, that looks fun, I'm going to buy a pony. And then I'll turn up, and then I can say, well, now we've got three people in our pony club. Let's come up with a name for our pony club. The Pixie Pink Pony Clubs. Yes, that'll be it. The Pixie Pink Pony Club. Sounds good. I like it. And someone will see that and they say, Oh, I can make a sign for this. I can make a sign for our clubhouse. And I can find a new paddock for us. And I can find some good feed for our ponies. And you know what? Let's all get pink saddles so that we're all matching. And we're all in this club together. And then you can say, well, this is a club. And, well, within clubs, you've got your organisers, you've got your managers, and you've got your leaders. And they might say, well, actually, we're serving some things and we're actually providing some services and, you know, we serve coffee. Can you chip in for the coffee and the biscuits? And can you chip in for the pony feed? And we're renting this place, so can you chip in for that? So there's a cost. And then there's a club with a a financial aspect to it. And then someone can come along and they say, well, there's a financial aspect to it, but we don't need a club to do that. And that's the world of business. That's the world of, hey, I've got a service or a product and you need it or you want it, so I'll charge you some money for it. And business, business is not in the realm of collective so much in the same way as that an institution or a government is, but it's related to these entities. It affects these entities because the free market, which is essentially you can sell what you want and the best product or service gets the highest price. That's the free market. Anyone can sell anything. Well, that's what drives the progress and that's what drives the flavor of a society, at least in this day and age. Because then someone can come along and say, well, this guy's selling pony saddles over here and I reckon if we can get you and him and some of your friends and me as well and we'll get in and we'll start mass producing some pony saddles, well, then we can make a better pony saddle than him for less of the cost and we can undercut him and we can make more money because we're working together and then we'll share the profits. So it's you, me and everyone working together to make these pony saddles and to flog them off for a profit and that is the free, that's the collective, so that's where the collective comes into it. And then on the other side, we can have like a a gang or a clan, which is, this is our group and we don't care about anyone else and we're in it for ourselves. We're in it for the cause. And maybe the other side, well, another way of looking at a collective would be the community. So community is another one like your education system and your government, which is you sort of just fall into it. It's possible to just fall into a community because of where you're living. The community garden or the community this, or the community activities, your local community is just the people you're living around. And that has a very different flavor to it, to business or pony club or an institution. And as you get a a little bit older, well, then your education systems start to change as well because then you're choosing which one to go to and you're choosing which one to attend, what, what to study in it. So we can say that, well, 
schools are teaching music, but what I can do is I can offer private music lessons. And these music lessons will be better than the ones they teach at the school because I have more knowledge. And I get a couple of students, and these students do really well, and they really like having music lessons with Dosta. And I think, well, I could get some people to help me. Let's get some people involved. And I'll say, you guys start teaching the piano lessons or the drum lessons the way I do. And we'll start an institution. It'll be the Dosta Music Lesson Institution. And together we'll share the profits. And then we can get the students to play music together. And they can get a sense of community. So it's not just like Pony Club where you have shared interests. But... Also, that there's a money side to it, and also that it's specialised. And that's just another way that a collective occurs. So, these collectives, they all have different degrees to them, and they all have different functions. And the, the whole thing, all together, we call culture. Or at least for this conversation, we call all this your culture, which is the range of collective activities that are available to you. And they all have common ideas. They're all, they've all got sort of an ideology to different degrees. Like some, some collectives are basically ideology, like a clan or a gang. They have an idea of what is right and what is wrong. And they recruit people based on, do you believe this idea? Do you agree with us? Do you think in this belief? Do you understand this philosophy? And so an organization by ideology is different to Pony Club because they're saying, well, we, we just like to ride ponies. doesn't really matter what you think about them. We just like pink ponies with pink saddles. And geography is your local community, and interests is the pony club, and degrees of independence is another variable, and how much funding they have. You can say, well, pony club is doing a really good job for the community because these kids have something to do on their weekend, so let's uh, organize for some government subsidy. And then you can say, well, now that collective, that organization is dependent on the government, so it's related to the government. And we can also say, well, if you don't have a pony, you're not involved in the club. Or it's only, I mean, I don't know about how a selective <laughs> pony club is going to be, but they, they have a degree of how selective they are also. We could say for some music institutions, you have to be at a certain skill of music in order to be involved in that institution and there are leaders you know if you have an ideological leader that's different to a leader of uh, a music institution and you have might have managers and organizers like your sunday sports you can say who's in charge who's the boss of sunday soccer and you can say well mary's the boss but she's not really the boss she just goes around and puts out the cone hats and pours the cordial and sends the the monthly newsletter and keeps the scores and she's just doing all the work. She's not really the boss. She's doing the enrollments, she's doing this and that and all over the place, saying who goes with who, doing the... So whoever does the work in some institutions is the boss, but they don't really boss in the same way that a collective that's driven by ideology does, where do you believe or do you not? So power is very different in each of these institutions or co collectives, I should say. And then there's also foundations. So they're sort of for a cause for improving the world. And you can have these sort of online, I mean, some of them are petitions. So a petition is pretty useless in this day and age. You know, there was a time there when it was like, sign our online petition. And we'd end up asking ourselves, well, what's really happening here? Are we just clicking a button on our computers? 
But foundations, well, where that comes into funding. You might get private funding for that. And then there's a cause. Well, what are we trying to fix in the world? What are we trying to improve? Who, who of disadvantaged position in life are we trying to help? Are we trying to better? And so on. So that's a very different kind of collective. And in the case of Harry, he's at the age where he's sort of still in the thick of all these. He's still in his own sort of way of figuring out what's going on. And he's starting to realize that, well, it's really not working for him. And he wishes there was another opportunity, something else. And that's where the Order of the Phoenix comes in. Because there are a bunch of wizards that realize there's a problem. There's an evil wizard about and we need to stop him. We're going to do some old, good old-fashioned, bad wizard hunting. And that's going to be our organization. And we're going to call it the Order of the Phoenix. And immediately, well, Harry turns up in this secret house. And there's a whole bunch of people there. Some of them are teachers from his school. One of them is Sirius Black, his godfather. Another one is Snape, the teacher that he doesn't like. And there's... A power struggle. There's a disagreement. There's a, like, who should be in it and who shouldn't. And they've also decided, well, none of the kids are in it. So Harry's not involved. And immediately he feels left out. He's thinking, I want to fight. I want to do my part. I want to get involved. And he's just being pushed to the side. And, well, that says something about newly formed collectives. How do they really get organized? Is it really so simple? Is it really so clear as Pony Club? And if you really want to see confusion, well, put a whole bunch of men in a room and tell them that they have to decide <laughs> on anything and... Believe me, I've seen a lot of confusion in that scenario involved in multiple different institutions. <laughs> so Harry goes to school and Ron and Hermione are actually given the, the status of prefect, I believe. I believe it's in this book. It might be the next book. But this indicates, well, the structure of the institution and how Harry feels about it. And he feels a little bit upset. You know, he, feel, he feels quite confused because at one, on one side, he's happy for his friends. And then on the other side, he's a little bit envious. And then he's even asking himself, is he just being envious because he's like Malfoy? Is he anything like his, his nemesis? No, couldn't be like that. And then actually Malfoy walks past and has this sneering comment like, how's being second to Weasley, Potter? And that really hits a nerve with Harry because it's such a, you know, he's just had all this confusion and all these thoughts of back and forth and how does he feel about it? And always Malfoy seems to come along and just hit him on the nerve. And there's another character which we meet in this novel. And this character really is something. She is beautiful and she is lovely. And if I get the chance, I'm going to marry her. <laughs> you know who it is. It can only be one. It's Luna Lovejoy. And we meet this character in this book for the first time. And she is just beautiful. She's so wonderful to watch. And she's cast so well and played so well in the movies. And it's very funny that Luna Lovejoy, well, she's got this 
nickname Lo- Looney Luna. Like she's a little bit weird. And that really says something because, well, you remember back in our first book, it was No Weirdos Allowed. Don't be so weird. To be a wizard is weird. To, be, to have magic is weird. You're a weirdo. So now we've been in this other world and we're sort of at the stage where, well, magic is normal. It's normal for you to say some words in Latin and hold a stick and then something happens or something moves. So our world, in a sense, has become normal. And at that point, well, someone weird comes along. So even in the world of weirdos, there are those that are weird. And it says... When Luna listens to you talk, she sort of has this look at her. She has has this look in her eye, like you're a mildly interesting TV program. And that has come up before. We see this. Have you ever had someone look at you like that? Do you know someone who's got that look when you talk? And there's a famous documentary which can help illustrate this look that Luna has or help to tell a story around it. There's a famous documentary called Wild Wild Country and that is a documentary on the Indian guru, the Indian guru Osho. And who was Osho? Well... We can talk about that at length for many days. (laughs) He's a rascal, but essentially he's a spiritual teacher. He's a spiritual leader. He's a guru. And, well, what did he do? Well, he had some followers. He had a collective. He had a community. And what he'd done was move to America because he'd heard that this was the land of free religious practice and this is the land of free opportunity, and he'd started his own commune. And this documentary is all about that collective. Now, there is money involved in that collective. There is ideas, there are shared interests, and it's very independent from the government and all those things. So it's a very good example of a... Collective, which is really beyond the normal culture. If we can say that there's a a sort of average culture that you're grown up in, and then there are institutions which, which see what's going on and really disagree with it and decide against following along with it and decide to actually, let's make our own thing. Well, then this institution, this commune that Osho started is a good example of that. And in this documentary, one of the things is, well, they're sort of interviewing people from this Osho commune, and they're also interviewing the people that see it from the outside and see it as a community that's attacking them or someone that's destroying their local livelihood. And one of the things they said is that these people walk around, and when you look at them, they look at you with this, ah, sort of funny look in their eyes. They look at you with the, the, the sense like you're a mildly interesting TV program, just like Luna does. <laughs> so I would suspect that Luna actually knows about meditation. And she knows about the witness and the mind, body, centaur, experiencing. And she's actually done a bit of consciousness work herself. And that's why she looks in a certain way. And actually, it turns out that Luna is a very sensitive and quite acutely aware of what's going on sort of person. And we see this in the very end, again, when Harry is sad and sort of down for the loss of his one of his close friends 
Sirius Black. And she's talking to him. And she's saying something like, oh, you're missing your godfather. And for other people to talk about that to Harry, he feels quite upset. He feels quite agitated. He's like, oh, don't bring that up. I really don't want to talk about it. But somehow the way Luna talks about it is sort of making it okay. And she's understanding. And there's a lot in this Luna character. She really has a lot of different things because later on, if we're not if we're not racing too far ahead, I hope we're not racing too far ahead. We're just looking at Luna for a little bit. But later on, we find out that her father has information which is critical for Harry's journey. And her father tells a story which is critical for what Harry needs to do next. And also, well, what does Luna's father do? You know what his job is? You remember what his job is? He runs independent press. So he's got an independent pamphlet or magazine which talks about culture, which talks about society, which talks about the Ministry of Magic and talks about the education system and talks about what's happening and well most people say no he's a bit loony just like his daughter he's a bit weird it's not quite right it's a bit it's a bit sort of fringe it's like is it a conspiracy theory but what we realize is that later on when the free press or the the press that's controlled by the ministry of magic is suppressing certain information we find out that he's actually telling the truth And at the time when there's a lot of fear and confusion in the wizarding world, it's the fringe media which is actually the truth. And that is a difficult, that's a difficult statement to make in this day and age. That's a difficult issue to tackle in the confines of a adolescent's or children's book, children's fantasy book. Because we do have a lot of fringe, what do we say, conspiracy theory, fake news, and that's I really don't even like to talk about that. I don't really want to get into that. So let's just keep this within the Harry Potter realm and just keep it within Luna Lovejoy's father's profession. And... At the very most, we can say that it makes us think. It makes us wonder, what is the author trying to say? And Luna in the movie, she's wearing these glasses. And Harry's been sort of knocked out on the train under his invisibility cloak. And her glasses show her what the little bugs are in Harry's 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 ears are sort of these invisible bugs. And she says, Oh, your your ear is full of them. What are they called? Nargols or something. I forgot what they're called. And she sort of says it like, Oh, matter of factly, you've got bugs all over you that makes your mind go crazy. So it's it's a it's very charming. Whenever she's on screen in the movies, I just think, oh, so wonderful, so beautiful, and so quirky, a little bit eccentric. I love a girl that's a little bit eccentric. So, Harry has his hearing for... using magic when he shouldn't. And Dumbledore turns up and sort of just lays it down and says, why are you spending this time on such an insufficient piece of, insufficient, non, non, uh, non-significant event 
when you should be working out why there are Dementors running free. And that sort of gets him off the hook, but there's also this thing starting up of Harry feeling like people are ignoring him. And it's not just that he's being not allowed to be in the Order of the Phoenix, but it's also that Dumbledore is ignoring him and running away from him and never talking to him, never making eye contact, this sort of thing. And this comes to a head later on. Harry really is starting to feel more and more alone. And like the little bugs in his ears suggest, he's starting to feel more and more confused in his mind. So Harry's not out of the thick of it yet, and he's also got this information that the Dark Lord is back hanging over him. So his life is becoming very complicated, very complicated indeed. And then when he goes back to school, we find out that Professor Umbridge is the new teacher on the block. And she's got this sort of personal presence that wants to uphold a false sense of okay. And she's saying things like, we are going to be the best of friends, which is sort of like this false pressure. Immediately puts a false pressure on her personal interactions to be correct And this, well, Umbridge is a significant character because it's a callback, just like we have weirdos in the weird world. Well, now we have conservatives. We see conservatism and this whole thing of, just like the Dursleys say, everything is absolutely okay and everything is fine. Thank you very much. Well, now we have Umbridge who's saying this exact same thing within the magic world and her character progresses from just being the teacher to actually coming out to be the principal to be the headmaster and there's a big arc in that that's a big part of this plot that's a big thread in this plot and To make things even worse for Harry, and to really top off, this is the most difficult thing in Harry's life at the moment, moment, is that, well, he starts to like this girl. He's got some anger with his friends. He's feeling alone from his father figure or his sort of wisdom figure in Dumbledore. He's got this looming dark lord over him and he starts to like this girl and he has this moment and her name is, well, it's Cho Chang. And he has this moment in the Owl Tower where she says to him that he's brave. And he gets quite confused just by this. It's enough for him to start thinking this and that and, oh, what am I going to do? And does she like me or... Because the other complication is, well, she used to be with Cedric. She used to be with them, Cedric Diggory, who was the young man that was killed when Harry was transported in the last novel. And there's this very funny scene where Harry and uh, Ron and Hermione are talking about this because you know the the relationship sort of evolves and Harry is you know he has a bit of a moment with Cho he gives her a bit of a kiss and he's sort of talking about it with his friends and it's a very funny scene in the movie how they do this because Hermione says well obviously she really likes Harry but she's confused and she doesn't want to feel bad about Cedric because she still likes him as well, but he's also she's also grieving his loss and, and, and it just goes on and on and on like this and Hermione's just explaining all these emotions and all these feelings and all these contradictions and all these complexities that are within Cho and, and Ron turns around and he just says, oh, one person couldn't possibly feel all that. <laughs> and of course, that's the moment where we all erupt with laughter. <laughs> Because it shows so much as the boys on the one hand and the girls on the other. And Hermione, well, she's quite rightly says, 
Just because you have the emotional complexity of a teaspoon doesn't mean everyone else does. You see, Hermione, she really is smart. She is she's the smartest character in the in the whole series, really. Because she's not only book smart, but she's also got, you know, multi-perspectival pluralism consciousness coming through. And now she's got also her emotional complexity in others. So she's hitting multiple lines of intelligence, not just one line of intelligence, like most of our characters are. So she really is smart. She really is. And and that's why it's just so funny. So that's another side to the plot. That's another thread that goes all through this. And then the other end of it is, well, Harry then goes out on a date with Cho. And Cho is wanting to talk about, you know, some tough things like our friend died and you're so brave and it's some pretty heavy stuff that they're going through. And Harry doesn't know how to sort of, he doesn't want to talk about this. Should I talk about this? I don't know how to talk about this. So there's no real deep connection there. And then Harry says, well, I was planning on meeting Hermione, so I have to go off and meet her. And of course, to Harry, Hermione is just a friend. But Cho, obviously, well, she thinks, hang on, he wants to go and meet another girl? Obviously, he doesn't like me. And it's all just a big mess, isn't it? This whole relationship thing is just complicated all over the place. Like, why can't two people just like each other and that's it? It could be so simple. So Umbridge, as she progresses, the other thing I wanted to mention was that there's this point where she's doing assessments on the teachers and she's sort of sitting there with her marking book to see how they are teaching. And this causes so much disruption in the institution. We can see that it's just, it's just cringe. And the reason it's so unsettling is because it's a reversal of the roles. The assessor is now being assessed. Usually it's the teacher assessing the students. And when it's put the other way around, or the assessor is being assessed, particularly in front of the students, then everyone thinks this is not how it's meant to be. So every institution has its natural way of flowing, and when you upset that, well, there's unrest. So what happens is Hermione suggests to Harry, why don't you start teaching Defense Against the Dark Arts because the teacher that we've got isn't very good and we know that it's going to be important to actually learn this. And so Harry begins to make his own collective or this this independent collective forms which is like Pony Club, a secret pony club. And it's all united by their one idea of wanting to learn to defend themselves. And they call it Dumbledore's Army. And they find a secret room to practice in. And Harry tells them some stories of what it's like to face a dark wizard. And he tells them some spells that have been useful for him and he tells them some situations where it might be useful or not and how different it is in the real world so this is an example of a a collective which is founded on this idea that well the collectives we're involved in are not good enough And we really need something better, and we could do a better job. And, well, there are collectives that feel that way, that are founded on that attitude. And they can say that about very big things. They can say, well, our whole culture 
is not very good. Our education system is not very good. Our communities are not very good. Even our foundations are not very good. And the cause that we're interested in might be something very, very deep. It might even be beyond an ideology. It might be beyond a value sphere. And it's one thing to go out and to create a collective to make change or to try and change the collectives that we've got. I mean, some people do that. Some people go into politics and law because they want to change how the government runs. They want to change how this society is. They see that there's something wrong with it and they think, well, let's make it better. And that's a noble intention. But the step beyond that is to say, well, actually, there's no saving this. There's no way around this. There's too much red tape. There's too much resistance. There's too much complexity. It's better if we just make our own island. And some of those communities, some of those islands are very independent. And I've been fortunate enough to participate in those. And one of them is, well, the Osho community. And I wasn't involved, obviously, in that community when Osho was alive or in the body, as they say. And I really only experienced remnants of that because it's a very different institution now. It involves, well, it involves business as well as shared interests. And you could say that, well, now the Osho Foundation is just a business and that's what keeps it going. But it's also a community. And it's also aware of the different influences that the collectives within culture and society have on the individual. And the best collectives are the ones that actually take care of the individual. The best collectives, the best communities, understand that each and, each and every single person needs their own autonomy. They need their own will, their own decisions made by themselves. And Harry, with his Dumbledore's army class teaching spells, is actually very good because he goes around and he helps each individual and he says, no, you've got to move your wand a little bit more this way. No, a little bit more like this. And you over here, you've got to do it to the left or you've got to pronounce it like this and so on. So he cares for the individual and it becomes a very good little club that he's got. So I think we'll finish it up now. And it's really a deep subject to be talking about how humans decide to organize themselves within a collective. It's definitely beyond my scope, which is why I leave it to J.K. Rowling to write a beautiful narrative which can tickle our minds on these subjects. So thank you, J.K. Rowling, for <laughs> right confusing me <laughs> and making a statement which begins a conversation at least, I mean, I mean, maybe I maybe I'll look it up and she says, no, she's trying to make this statement. Didn't you get it right? You've missed the point. Maybe, maybe I've missed the point. I don't know. Let's let's see. I mean, but at least it's something to mull over, something to think about, which we can do right now if we just sit quietly and close our eyes for a few minutes. And that's all I have to say. 
for now.